This is Dan Fagella, and you're listening to AI in Industry. Last week, we heard from Sankar Naranyan, who's the Chief Practice Officer of Fractal Analytics. This is a unicorn company, a giant firm focused on AI consulting and analytics consulting with large organizations. This week, we speak with someone with a similar background, but at a much smaller firm. Dr. Charles Martin runs a company called Calculation Consulting. Dr. Charles is a bit of a mentor of mine when it comes to AI knowledge. I've been speaking to him about our business here at Emerge for three plus years. And Charles joins us in this month's theme on the ROI of artificial intelligence. Charles has seen the inside of big companies like BlackRock uh, and large media firms and you name it in a number of different machine learning oriented projects for 10 years running. And Charles speaks with us this week about the particular pitfalls to getting to ROI. He speaks at length about some of the cultural elements within enterprises that make it so hard to focus on the aspects of AI that are ultimately going to lead us to seeing a return. Charles is quite a character, and we go off in all kinds of different directions. His brain works in in funky ways, and so we go off on one tangent and run off into another tangent, and that's just kind of how my conversations are with Charles, so be a little bit prepared for that, but it's an awfully fun episode, and if you're tuned in and listening closely, you'll pick up on some very important uh, kind of cultural trends that you'll need to be ready for. The fact of the matter is this, if you are prepared for the cultural hurdles, for some of the team collaboration challenges that are inevitable in bringing AI to life in the enterprise, you are going to have a better chance of getting to ROI, point blank period. And Charles articulates them at length and with color in this episode here on AI and Industry. So without further ado, let's hop right in. So, Charles, uh, I wanted to kick us off with sort of thinking about the factors we need to consider before pulling the trigger on an AI project, before diving into an initiative. What should business leadership, what should the project team do well ahead of time to give themselves the best chance of seeing a return on an AI project? What what would you kind of nutshell there? You know, I, I think I would give them the same advice that we get in a startup, is that you need to figure out how you can test your assumptions as quickly as possible and to pivot as quickly as possible to be able to run different kinds of experiments to figure out what's really going to work. Yeah, and so it, let me think about that maybe out loud here with you, Charles. In other words, when we're kicking off an issue, it's not just, okay, this is the goal that we're shooting for. It's, this is the goal. Here's how we think we're going to get there. Does this involve a little bit of plan B, plan C, a number of different hypotheses we could run with, kind of having all of that on deck so that if we need to change direction, we can do it in real time? Or what does that look like in, in the Right, in the right. Let me, let me give you the alternative. The alternative oh, is that you go out and you have some idea that some data is going to be useful. And so you spend half a million dollars buying this data, and then you spend six months trying to get your data infrastructure in place. And then at the end of all this, you find out that the data was useless. And someone comes to you know, the data scientist and go, well, why doesn't this work? And they just kind of look at you puzzled and go, well, why would you think it would work? You, you, there's been no actual vetting of the actual project other than some sort of soft feeling that you have that this should work. And I think that's the hardest part is that it's sort of the story of the Edsel. You know, that people went out yeah. and they, they thought they knew how to build a car. And a, what you have is a lot of Etzels. 
you know, you're not getting in front of customers or in front of users or getting inside your own infrastructure and figuring out what you have. And it's a lot easier and a lot more enticing for engineers, especially IT people, to want to build things than to want to solve problems. So they will spend an enormous amount of time building infrastructure, setting up databases, doing compliance, all sorts of things, everything that's safe because they already know how to do it and you're just building something and you know how to scope it and you know how to budget it and you know how to staff for it. And then when you get to the AI part, you're like, well, we have all this infrastructure in place. Then you find out, well, you know, you didn't really think about what you had. And it turns out that maybe maybe you didn't really look carefully at your data. And it turns out your data is a mess. And it takes you months of just figuring out what's in your data. Or, or maybe it turns out the idea you had just is fundamentally not viable. We, we've had many projects like this where someone comes to us and they want to do a project and we look at the data and they're just like, we're, you know, you're just going to build features and build a model. Build features and build a model. We look at the data and we go, this is just not a viable idea. And if you look at it, you could see immediately that this isn't going to fly. And I think that's the hardest part. And so you need to figure out how to design a process within your organization where you can avoid all of the process that you already have so you can start running experiments. Here, here, here's another, another good problem, another issue that comes up. A lot of organizations, especially IT organizations, are designed around automation. Automation, compliance, governance. So they want things to run end-to-end automatically. And so you start working on an AI project, and you've got an idea of you build a model. And, you, and it might take you like you know a week to build a model. Maybe it's not that complicated of a model. And then it takes six months to get this thing into production. Why? Well, you know, because you're in the, the IT department is insisting that the entire product be run end to end within your IT infrastructure. Well, IT has been around for 20 years. And so the infrastructure is quite mature. And, you know, there's compliance issues around the data and you think you have to have automated build systems and automated deploy systems. And it turns out that and it turns out you're not really set up to do that yet. You know, your, your automated systems are not designed to roll out this new product. And so it's kind of like saying the analogy, imagine you have a factory and the factory makes some kind of widget and you want to make something new, you know, and you want to make some new toy, like you're a toy company, you want to make a new toy, but you don't really know if the children are going to like it. And so you got to figure out how can you make a hundred little toys and give them out to your customers and test it before you spend six months retrofitting your factory. And it's the same thing, same problem. And IT shops, the problem is that the IT world wants delivery, but data science and AI is not about delivery. It's about discovery. Ah, okay, another, this is, okay. You mind if we poke into this, Charles? We've got, we got a lot to unravel here. I know the audience is going to want to catch up with us. So, yeah, so the delivery versus discovery is a very interesting dynamic. It's a, that's a nice nutshell. You know, it's sort of like you have emphasized that AI is not IT deal. You know, we have kind of the probabilistic versus the, the more if-then type of, of scenario. This is another lens on it, the delivery IT versus discovery. 
AI. And I think one of the things that would be useful to unravel for the audience would be what are these assumptions? What are these assumptions that maybe people don't realize are assumptions? So the way that I see this when you're articulating it, Charles, and I want to kind of make this into a couple actionable bullets for, for the folks tuned in, would be as we're imagining our AI project, we're thinking through, okay, I believe that this data trained in this kind of way with this kind of a model um, would be able to you know, decrease our false positives or would be able to recommend better products that might improve our cart value by X percent or something like that, whatever the case may be. What we'd have to do is essentially look at what we're going to try and ask ourselves in a very harsh light here, uh, and preferably with data scientists in the room. I think a lot of these mistakes are made when it's just the C-suite laying out how this is going to work. We get data scientists in the room and we say, which of these things that, that we're sort of going to think are going to happen here are completely hypotheses. And um, maybe we're never going to have 100% of a proper guess on the upfront, but can we maybe come up with a better set of hypotheses? Is there a better data set we could start with? We don't know it's going to work, but maybe we could begin with a better hypothesis. So is it is it worth sort of assessing, here's what we want to roll out. Here's all the all the assumptions that underpin that, whether we think they're assumptions or not. Here's all the assumptions that underpin that. Get some data scientists and business people to pick those apart and then say, are any of these blatantly stupid? Or can any of these be tested in very small ways so that we feel good about releasing these funds? Is this kind of what you're getting at? And is, is there a better, more kind actionable of, way? Yeah, go ahead. Kind of, but the, here's the problem with that. I mean, I, we've had projects where we go into a company and we have a very simple product. We want to produce something. You know, we want to, imp- we want to improve the accuracy. We want to build some classifier or some predictor. And so, look, you got to give me your data and you got to give me two weeks minimum to just look at the data. And what happens is they come in and the first thing they want to do is have this hypothesis session. But they're not hypotheses. They're conjectures. Because a hypothesis in the scientific method requires that you first have looked at some data. You make a hypothesis based on things you've seen. So it's not a hypothesis if you haven't actually looked at anything yet. It's just conjecture. It's just wild speculation. And what happens is you go into a planning meeting and people have all sorts of ideas of things they would like to try. Oh, we could do this, or we could do that, or we could. It's like you know, you're. It's not. They're not functional ideas because you haven't really thought about what the data is actually telling you. And I think this is one of the hardest things to grasp. And it's very hard because you know what happens in any organization is it larger or especially now because you know or now we're starting to see AI occurring in larger organizations. So you have to think about how people in the larger organizations think, you know, when the manager or the or you know the CTO or the business leader comes in and says something, well they're going to do whatever that person says irrespective of whether it's a good idea or not because they're trying to basically do their job and cover themselves. So they're not going to think, oh and and and, and they're not going to think, okay, I need to go out and take some risk. And I need to try to guess what we need to do. And I need to try to look at the data and hypothesize something. They're going to be much more comfortable if someone tells them, here's what I want you to do and you do it. Because they're going to be more secure in their jobs. It's just the nature of how larger organizations work. M- many times, you know, when we've done AI projects, the way I think that what's changed is that if you were to talk to me about AI even five years ago, I would say, well, this is mostly being done within the innovation groups of a company. But now what we're finding is, and you know, you carve out some piece of the company, which is isolated from all the other processes. And by carving that out, you're not burdened by the processes or the management structure. 
But now we're starting to see AI happen inside of companies, all, you know, just inside the company. Everyone wants to be AI. Every company is trying to be an AI. Look, it's all Google and Facebook talk about is AI. Yep. So everybody wants to be an AI company. But the problem is that do you really want to be doing discovery? You know, are you really going to organize teams in such a way that you can discover what's going on? Because you're you're not structured to do discovery. Your organization isn't organized around discovery. It's organized around the products you already have built and that you're already selling and that you're basically just providing incremental advances on. And, and I think that people expect, oh, we can just bring AI in and we'll get some incremental advance in some piece of our product line. Maybe we have 10 staff and we can reduce it to seven or reduce it to three or something like that. But you know, you have to go through this discovery process. You're creating a new product. And I think that's what's hard. And I think people, especially in IT departments, because IT has never been about creating products. IT has always been in support. Yeah. IT is about somebody has a product. We go, we get a product off the shelf and we read how the product functions. And then we install it and we run it and we maintain it and we automate it. It's never really been about we're going to build new products and give them to customers. And you're doing it to internally, right? Your AI is I'm either building something internally, like I have internal customers and I'm trying to go out to these customers and I'm trying to discover what do they need? What do they have and what do they need? And so maybe if we could break down what would be a better paradigm to some degree, you know, you had mentioned that, okay, we think about a project, we're preparing upfront, and we're really diving into this upfront thing, but I'm, I'm happy to kind of make this a, a bit of a deep dive here in this. That's fine. There's That's a fine. lot of ways that this pre-planning can go wrong. There's a lot of ways that people are kind of saving face and making bosses happy and not necessarily fleshing out the hypotheses that have to really be fleshed out before we spend money responsibly. So there's a lot of ways that those AI planning processes can be flubbed. And like you said, discovery is not really what maybe we're good at in the first place. Even if no matter how many billions we make, most companies, this isn't their ballgame. You have talked in the past about AI is really doing science. Are you ready to do science? And for most people, no, we're not ready to do science. We're ready to have a budget and reach a goal and happy birthday. So there's a lot of ways this can get messed up. If you're, you know, talking to a company, let's say it's, you know, an enterprise, they, they have some resources, maybe not great AI bench just yet, but, but they have resources. And they say, Charles, we don't want to mess this up. We want to do the pre-planning, but we want to sidestep all the ways that people screw up the pre-planning to miss a return on investment. How can we as an executive team with outside personnel, with inside data science talent, how can we kind of have a combined force that comes together to really suss out these hypotheses so that we allocate money responsibly? What would be the good way to do that? If a company would Look, now, I, maybe maybe people are not going to actually follow your directions. But in a dream world where they did, Charles, what does that look like? Well, look, in a lot of the successful projects we're on, you do have a mandate to do some sort of innovation program that, you know, you set up an innovation group and the innovation group works with other groups, but they're outside of the traditional management and process structure. And they're given resources that allow them to do things and to build products that they can then sell internally to other people in the company. So, I mean, we were at, when I was at BlackRock, this is how we did it, you know, at Barclays Global Investors before, you know, I was at BGI and they were acquired by BlackRock. We had an innovation group that worked between the technology group and the um, asset management group. 
So they're basically like there's like two a floor. Imagine the building's cut in half. One group is technology. One group is asset management. Well, typically, you know, and your goal is we're trying to work with the portfolio managers and the quants to develop technologies that they can use to better predict the stock market. And I think that's the closest thing to what AI is, because you're trying to use algorithms to make predictions about things going on, either in your market or inside your company. And, you know, the innovation group essentially would go and talk to other teams in the company and find out what they're doing, and then would try to build prototypes that they could then quickly roll into production and test. And I think that the the key to, to discovery versus delivery is to avoid this congestion that you get by trying to retrofit your factory. Look, there there are a lot of startups right now who are trying to build IT pipelines for machine learning and AI so that, that companies have the software components in place so that if I give you a model, that model can be deployed into production, it can be monitored, it can be tracked, it can you know that that that's what people are trying to do. You're either a lot of companies are either building this internally, you know, the Airbnbs and the Ubers of the world have built these pipelines internally. Or you have startups that are trying to do this. And you know they're trying to sell these pipeline systems. You know, in the same way that you have you know in any type of IT process pipeline. And and I think the challenges are things like Look, you, you do have issues around uh, data compliance. If you're working with your data, you want to make sure that your data doesn't leak out. And it's difficult to get access to production data. It may be difficult to put something in the production because it has to be audited. You know, these are things you have to figure out. What do you really need to go into production to run the test? What are the real, what are the actual constraints that are legal operational constraints, like things like data compliance and audit? versus the kind of constraints that are just there because you have technical debt. Oh, we're using GitHub to do deployments and everything has to be put into the GitHub system in this way. Well, where do we put the models? Put the models in the GitHub. Well, you can't put them in. They're too big. Oh, you know, or, you know, like it's not really a, an audit issue. It's just you, you pick the wrong technology. So pick a different technology that you can use that still satisfies whatever actual constraints you have. And I, I think that's the challenge is, you know, you can't just throw something at your customer. You know, if you're running a restaurant, you have to at least cook the food before you give it to somebody. But, you know, it, it don't have to act, you know, but you still can make the product outside of the traditional process, outside of your traditional manufacturing process. You can get it in front of someone quick enough so you can know, okay, this looks good. I can form a hypothesis. I can test it. Now I can go back and iterate. And, and I don't have to worry about, and I can iterate and I can begin thinking about how we're going to change our IT delivery process so that we can start deploying things in production. I, I think that's the, probably the hardest thing in AI is realizing that this is going to happen. You know, if you start doing AI, don't expect that your IT department's going to be able to take these models and put them into production, you know, in, in two weeks. It, it's just not going to happen. It's going to, it could be six months. They may not, you know, yeah. and, and we've seen this time and again. And I think that's the challenge. So there's an expectation setting element here where we have to know that, you know, putting these models into production is not going to be plug and play. You know, even if the application itself is somewhat simple, getting all those dots to connect and having data infrastructure feed the thing, even in a little sandbox, never mind in, in like really operating in the business in production, bigger hurdles than we're, than we're expecting. Maybe there's a set of those. I realize we're coming up on time, but I want to see if maybe there's a, a set of these boxes to check, Charles. Maybe, maybe it's a set of steps to do 
before we roll out an AI project, or maybe kind of like what you've been articulating for the last few minutes, maybe it's a set of core expectations that we need to grit our teeth and understand before we start rolling forward and realistically planning these things. Are there, are there a set of, of bullets maybe even just on the expectation side, like, hey, when, when you go about really trying to suss out an ROI, trying to measure an ROI, and make sure that you have your best shot at striking at that, there's no guarantees, but you have your best shot is there a, a short bullet point list here of things that maybe people could think through? Because I know there's a lot of listeners that are going to be in this boat. Look, I, I think the, the first thing you have to ask is, are you able to carve out some piece where you can have some small group giving deliverables to your IT department that does the production and will they accept it? What are the actual limitations? What are the actual requirements? What are the things that you, that you not, not what is this thing, technical infrastructure? But what is the actual thing that you're concerned about if you give something to your customers? Is it, is it a compliance issue? Is it a GDPR type issue? Or you're, you know, is it a security issue? Is it an audit issue? What are the things that you really need to satisfy? You know, imagine you're buying a new product. Well, what are the actual things you have to satisfy? Not what's the technical debt. How can you get around the technical debt? Is one. Two. How are you going to measure the performance? And I know everybody says, "Well, just measure the RI." Well, it's not that simple. You know, you might be putting something into production where only a very small number of users see it. Well, you got to make sure that the users who see it are the right users, you know, and that you've got to make sure you're doing, you know, you, you may be put, you know, the guy who puts in the production market, well, you know, we have, we already have these premium users. We don't want to show this to the premium users because we don't want to lose their revenue. So we'll show it to the kind of, you know, the users that never buy anything anyway. And if you show it to them and they don't buy anything and you go, well, it didn't work. Well, you didn't know had you showed it to your premium users, maybe they would have bought twice as much. So that's a real issue. So you have to ask, you know, what, what set of users or customers or what part, because you're not going to run the thing at scale on, on every single customer you have or every single internal component. You're going to run on some small set. So you've got to make sure that the test makes sense and that if the test fails, it actually tells you something. You no, know, you can run a test, and if it succeeds, it's good. But if it fails, you learned nothing. So what did you learn? You didn't learn that you have to do it again. So you know, think about what you're going to measure and whether the test is really going to tell you what you need it to tell you. And, and the third is you know, when it comes to budgeting, you know, people come and ask, you know, how much budget do you need to do an AI project? And oh, sort of my answer is, well, yeah, yeah. how much can you give me? And I'll use as much as I can. I yeah, mean, you know, I, that's, that's I'm the only running, logical answer. No, because I'm running numerical, I'm running calculations. I don't know how, I don't know what's going to work. So it's, you know, you, ha you have to realize that's what's happening. It's not easy to budget because you don't know what's going to work. And so, I mean, another question is how many times are you going to do it? How many times are you going to try? Are you going to try once, two times, three times? You know, are you willing to say, I'm going to run a different experiment every month for six months until we figure it out? I mean, do you have that tenacity? Or is it just, oh, we do a one-off and... If the one-off works for the quarter, we're good. If it doesn't work, well, okay, we're not going to fund it. You, know, you have to make a decision. Are you going to be an AI company or not? You may not knock it out of the box. And if you're going to, you have to ask, can we reasonably do six experiments in six months? Or would that take us six years? Yeah. So those are the things I would be concerned about. And I, and I see this all the time. Another issue is staffing. You know, whenever you begin working on a, a complex project inside somebody else's IT infrastructure, you're going to need assistance. You know, whoever's doing it is going to need to have assistance from the IT support staff to figure out problems you need to solve. Are you going to have someone in the organization 
who has the mandate to ask these people to give you the help that you need? Or is it going to be where there's some team somewhere off doing something, and when they have to go to IT services and say, we need help on something, every time they need something, it has to escalate to the CTO to get it done. I mean, I've been on projects where we had to escalate all the way to the CEO. And, then, and he's like, you know, when that happens, you know, they're not happy about, you know, people get fired when you have to escalate to the CEO. Because, like, what's going on? Why are things not getting done? But, you know, everyone is busy. Everyone has projects they're trying to do. And they're not necessarily going to help your team if there's no mandate to do it or they don't get recognized for helping you. I mean, no one's going to help anyone if it, it causes them to miss their own milestones. So those are things you have to consider in a large organization. And so what's the simplest thing you can do? I mean, uh, you know, with a lot of these projects, I recommend you know, just make a simple web service and the web service sits by itself and you can, you, you just, the company can access the web service. I mean, then there's very little coupling. If it has to be integrated, you imagine, oh, I have to run the AI inside SQL Server itself or inside Oracle as a stored procedure. That might not ever happen. I've had CTOs suggest this. Well, we'll just run inside. I go, that's never going to happen. <laughs> it's just not going to happen that way. So you have to think technically, what is the easiest way to plug something in and take it out? You know, how do you put a new piece of equipment into your factory? You don't want to have to redo all the, elect all the electricity. It's that kind of thinking. And I think sometimes in the IT, AI is so ethereal that it's difficult to really conceptualize what's happening here. I think that's also part of the problem. You know, I, IT people are used to having hard plug and play services. And that's not what this is. Not even close. You know, yeah. In some sense, people who work in marketing or who work in finance are more open to these things because they're used to doing simple experiments. That's interesting. So the mindsets might even be more shared there. And well, maybe that's an ending point here, Charles, is to actually just touch briefly on that. We had a really good, so number one, I appreciate the expectation checks. As those of you who are tuned in right now, I think that the core lesson to be extracted from Charles' experience here is that, you know, how can you give yourself the best chance of an AI ROI? Well, get rid of all the crazy gunky ways that AI adoption and decisions can be messed up or that the very common assumptions that are that are typically wrong about how, you know, quote unquote easy this stuff is going to be. Harsh reality doses here. Final quick question, Charles. We had a, a fellow very high up at uh, Fractal Analytics talk about the multiple ways that ROI can be thought of. You know, oftentimes, as you had mentioned, you know, some people are making this plug and play assumption. Some people are thinking it has to do with you know, just something that ties to quarterly earnings in some way, shape, or form. But but there's a lot of ways that we might measure an ROI. There's certain skills we could build that'll set us up for the future. There's modernizing a data infrastructure to enable more capability in the future. There are efficiencies, there's revenue, there's retention, whatever the case may be. Do you like to kind of have a bigger grab bag than just finance when you think about ROI, when clients ask, what's, what's the win here? How do we get a big win here? What do you typically shake out there? What's the real ROI, right? Whenever you go in an organization, you're working with somebody. Your goal is to get them promoted or to get them a bonus. That's why they brought you in. That's the ROI. What is it that they need to deliver on? So, you know, it may be that, you know, I, th I think you know, when you talk about, oh, we're going to create better data infrastructure or everyone in the company is going to become an AI company. Well, look, you know, that's really structured around, there's got to be some other motivation for people wanting to do the, you know, why are you really doing this? You know, who's driving the project and what are the milestones that they have to meet? 
And, you know, obviously for some groups, you know, many groups have their own internal milestones that they have to meet. And you have a certain amount of runway that you have to meet this. So internally, you know, in a large organization, because eventually someone's going to have to run these projects. And so you have to ask, well, how are you judging them? So, yeah, if you go to the IT department, they're always going to say, oh, we want to modernize our infrastructure because it allows them to grow their teams. Oh, I can hire more people. I, I have more staff under me. They always, they always want to they always create a cost center for the company. We're going to we're going to do this. I, I think it's more what what is the real threat that people have in AI? You know, the, the problem is that, you know, you're you're doing something and you have a certain margin and some new company is going to come in. And they're going to kill you on the margins because they have new technology. And your, your goal is to somehow change the capital structure of your company. So, if, you know, if you, if you, for example, have a – if you're selling – let's look at the difference between selling data and having an AI product. Here, here's a good example. I was talking with an investor this morning about this. If you're collecting data, you might ask, what can I do as a company? What can we do with the data? Well, you know, you might be able to sell your data to somebody else. You know, the old Facebook sold it to Cambridge Analytica. That, you know, obviously, you know, it's you know, you sell people sell data, so that's one revenue stream that you could have. But you know, when you sell data to people, it's not like uh, unless you have a recurring revenue stream, that's not a really guaranteed revenue. Can you really? Are you going to resell that unless you're Bloomberg? And you're going to resell your data over and over and over again. It's not really a recurring revenue stream. On the other hand, if you have an AI product, well, that product could generate revenue because it's a recommender or because it's it's preventing churn. So it's, in some sense, it's an intangible asset that you can amortize over a very long period of time. And that changes the nature of your company significantly. That's the big one, because all of a sudden you have an asset which you can kind of sell to an asset. And all of a sudden that, and it's a thing that you sell, you sell your data. All of a sudden that asset becomes much more valuable because of this intangible algorithm. And you can even project, well, you know, over the next five years, this is how much revenue we're going to make. And we're going to amortize it in this way. So that was the magic of demand media. You know, they had all this content. We were able to amortize the content because we had the demand algorithm. So I think that's the thing that really makes AI so powerful. And, and that's not necessarily revenue or margin in that way. It's, it's how you do the accounting on it. Yeah. So this is, uh, let me see if I can, if I can nutshell this as we wrap, because I, I think this is, I mean, in my opinion, this is clearly the big game, but I think it is a little bit much to chew on. I think if we're thinking about, well, can we get a chat bot, right? I mean, this is, this is a big leap from that kind of way of thinking, but I think the idea is that this is the way of handling data of making processes you know, more lean, maybe more agile, making products more responsive, making cost structures more advantageous that ultimately will permit us to survive and thrive as the rest of the world adopts this stuff and as the startups start to eke their way into this ecosystem. This is finding the new ways to do business. And unless we have these darn skills, and unless we can work with this darn data and streamline it and find ways to use it and get used to operating this way, we don't really get to stay active, agile, and moving forward in this industry. We just get to wait to croak. It sounds like, again, that's very, very high level, but is that kind of what you're touching on? Yes. Look, you you have. You know, why does Silicon Valley exist? It exists because you know companies basically operate at a certain margin, and somebody comes in with new technology and can operate at half the margin, and they kill you. 
you just can't survive. There's no way to, they just eventually will eat your lunch because there's just no way you can, if you're operating at 70% and somebody comes in like Amazon and operates at 30% and margin, you're done. You know, what are you going to do? And so if you're saying someone comes in with AI and all of a sudden they have all these intangible, I mean, Airbnb is a good example of this or Uber. They don't own any assets. They just have algorithms. <laughs> That's it. They own no asset. They're platforms. They've externalized their revenue. This another way to think about it is that in the old days, how did people think about companies? You think about them in terms of I have a factory. I'm going to internalize my processes and make them more efficient and I can produce products more efficiently. And that's not what, if you look at most of the companies today, they're not doing that. They're, they're platform companies. They're platforms where they're able to externalize a lot of these costs. And these platforms operate by algorithms. You know, if you're a platform, you have a, you have a search, search and recommendations. I mean, those are your two primary algorithms. You know, if, if it's Uber, Uber you know, is obviously matching. But I mean, if you look at Airbnb, search and recommendation. Those are your two basic algorithms. Yeah. And those two, and pricing, search, recommendation, and pricing. And those algorithms allow you to externalize your assets. And that's it. You know, you're, how do you compete against someone who has no assets and has, only has revenue? When I think about the algorithms, that to me is where it just changes the nature of what the company does entirely. It's not only that, you know, if all you have is data, all, if all you can do is sell your data to somebody else, you're kind of like, you know, the country that only sells wood to people. And then somebody else takes the wood and makes it into something. So there's a diminishing value. Now, if there's something like Bloomberg and you own the entire market, okay, maybe that's okay. But I mean, in terms of alt data, you know, there's all these people selling alt data. And, you know, I don't know if that's a good business or not. It's certainly not the same as running a fund where you can predict things. So the algorithms in some sense are pure play. They allow you to think of, maybe this is a good way to say it. They allow you to get leverage, right? They allow you to leverage your data. Yeah, to, to build so, a business on top of that leverage makes you survivable, especially when everybody else starts doing that. Is that right? Yeah, and also, look, you think most people think I'm going to generate revenue or I'm going to decrease my margin. But the big argument, I mean, one of the big arguments on the difference between how Wall Street values companies and how Silicon Valley values companies is that Silicon Valley always looks at the leverage. They look at how, what is the nonlinear multiplier? What is it that you have that will make you 10 times the amount of revenue or 100 times the amount of revenue you would expect? What is that nonlinear, you know, what is that? Why are companies like Airbnb and Uber valued so much? It's because they have tremendous leverage. And I think that's where there's a huge disconnect between the traditional valuations of companies and what are, you know, the, how the valley values. Now, whether the value, whether the valley is doing a good job or not, you know, whether they're overvaluing, it's all speculation that, you know, that, those are fair discussions. But in terms of AI, AI gives you leverage. It allows you, it, it's a force multiplier for your data. Yeah. It feels to me, Charles, like the real ROI long ball on this stuff requires a way of thinking that is more Silicon Valley than it is general manager at Geico, general manager at GE. The incremental make more, save more is a totally different way of thinking than what you're talking about now. How possible and realistic do you think it is for this ROI conversation to actually sink into the enterprise? Does it require a sector to get completely turned on its head? 
Or what's going to have to happen? Because I know for a fact that it takes a while to get this idea that you're talking about to sink in at, let's say, a Wells Fargo, you know, at, at, depending on what level you're at. But I mean, in general, that's not the mode of thinking. Is this going to be near impossible as kind of a mental shift here unless like horrendous disruption occurs? Well, look, what, what, what do most people do? They acquire other companies. <laughs> I mean, they acquire an AI company and they put them in charge. Because they realize they can't do it themselves. I mean, this is what, you know, if you want to do it internally without acquiring talent, well, then you're going to have to build, a, you're going to have to transform. You have to go through change management, some sort of AI change management where you decide, look, we're going to make these big changes and we're going to do it by bringing in leadership and give them the mandate to do it. And, and the problem that I see is that there just, there aren't that many people in the industry who have experience with these technologies where they can credibly come up and say, I'm going to be a leader of this group. And, and if you look at even clients I work with, you know, they bring someone in, oh, I, I ran a search engine, I ran a small search engine, now I'm going to lead the AI group. You've never worked with this technology. You know, you, so people are like, I mean, you're not going to be able to hire good people because they're going to look at you and go, well, you know, you don't really know this stuff. Why should I work with you? I don't want to work with you. You're just, gonna, you're just going to hamstring me. You, know, you can't run a basketball team without a. I mean, that's why the coaches make so much money. You know, we always talk about you know how much the, uh, the, players, uh, the players make. make. Yeah, I think I think I saw saw one baseball player made like three hundred million, three hundred fifty million dollar con, just incredible contracts. But I mean, these coaches. I mean, I think the coach, one of these coaches over in Oakland, has a hundred million dollar contract. You know, you got to have a coach that the players want to play with. And it's the same thing. And that's why they just don't know how to build that. You've got to decide we're going to become it. Look, I, I've had clients who've said, we want to become an AI company. And we're going to focus our efforts on retraining our staff. And, and they're going to start learning AI. And we're going to start doing this. But in the end, you have to have people in leadership positions who can guide them and mentor them. And it's one of the things we do as a consultant is to provide this kind of mentorship. You know, yeah, to try to mentor yeah. staff and help them. It's much harder at the executive level because they don't want the mentorship. You know, the staff, they're they're fine. You know, they're like, oh great, we're learning new stuff. We're we're very excited. But at the high level, it's very hard because you're not making decisions about, you know, do I use the logistic regression or XG boost, you know, or a random forest. I mean, it's not that level of decision. It's much more, it's a much bigger decision that you have to make about how you're going to structure things. And those decisions are harder to challenge that, you know, there, there aren't, there's not as much flexibility. So these companies have, look, we, we see, we, we, we do see companies doing things. You know, there are companies trying and you know, they're making progress, but I think a lot of it is through acquisitions. They acquire, yeah, yeah. they acquire somebody. The slow osmosis, Charles, the slow osmosis of the subject matter experts rubbing off enough data science savvy and the data science folks rubbing off enough subject matter expertise within their sector, enough people getting team construction wrong, getting planning wrong to come out of those wrongs and have some ways of going right. This bubbling up of talent and collaboration and tools is uh, slow and clunky, uh, I guess, as it seems as though you're you're illuminating, and hopefully that's a take home message for the folks who are doing. Well, I mean, it. if you're talking about people trying to get into AI, remember that AI is ten years old. Yeah, I mean, well, no, it's ten I, it's ten I, years I, old for guys like you. I mean, it's older than ten years old for guys like you. But for for most of the folks tuned in, it might be four or five years old tops. And and it was it's only right. been at the level of events. It, they've only gone to events for the last two three years, even. And you know, so it's it's brand that new. We're for a lot seeing of that there's definitely now what's happening in the industry is that there's a huge shift 
in industry to start something. It's, it's definitely different than it was five years ago. It's hundred percent different. Oh, yeah. But if you think about what Amazon and Google have been doing, they've been at it. I mean, they have Google acquired DeepMind 10 years ago. So they've been at this a lot. And Amazon has been at this for 20 years. Google didn't acquire that I, I, 10 years ago. It might have been It might have been five, right? I mean, Google, Google's DeepMind acquisition, what was that? It might have been 2013 at the earliest. I thought it was 2014. I could be wrong. I don't know. Let me check. They acquired Aardvark. Yep. Yeah, DeepMind I thought was 2014. Either way, I think the point is still the point. <laughs> it's all good. I, I know we're, we're going a little bit long. Those of you who are tuned in here, you recall Charles's last episode was a pretty long one as well. Definitely... A lot to say on this topic, and I'm glad we've gotten to go into some some reasonable depth. Any other final takeaways, Charles? This is going to be one of our kind of wrap-up episodes on the series of AI ROI. Last little snippet you yeah, want yeah, folks yeah. to watch. 2014. It's been five years. Ah, okay, there we go. Yep. Okay. 2014. I'm thinking yeah. Aardvark. For oh, me, yeah. Aardvark was the machine running. Yep. Look, I, I think that what makes AI hard for people to really grasp their head around is that it looks like IT. It uses the same tools. It uses software. It uses computers. It's not like you're doing hardware design. You know, you're, you're not you're not doing electrical engineering. You're not doing materials chemistry. So it looks like the same thing, and it's different. And I think this is what's hard to grasp: is that it's not IT. It augments IT. It fits into the IT process at some point, but it's definitely a different thing. And I think what makes it challenging is that you have to realize IT. 20 years ago, you know, 30 years ago, thinking about 1998, what was IT? What was it like? Yeah. And that's where we are with AI. Maybe now it's like we're like 2002 in terms of AI. But, I, you know, IT was nowhere. It, was, it just wasn't what it was. If you think about what it was then and what it is now, that's where we are with AI. And it's that fundamentally different. Yeah. And I think that that's where your mindset has to be. Yep. So hard lessons to learn. Not everybody's going to be able to endure discovery. And if they are, they have to be able to be willing to embrace the long ball ROI shebang as opposed to merely sticking with finance, anything like in the near term alone. I was just going to say the other thing is a lot of people see AI as treasure hunt. I'm going to give you your data. I'm going to go on a treasure hunt and maybe you'll find some nugget of gold you can give us. And I think that's probably about maybe that's 50 percent right, 50 percent not. But I think a lot of people see it as a treasure hunt. I'm going to Alaska. To look for gold. Yeah. You know, it's 19, it's 1920, I think is when they, when was the gold rush, 1910, 1920. Something We're like going that. to Alaska to look for gold. Are you going to Alaska to set up shop to live there? <laughs> you know, not most people who went there didn't set up shop. They went, they got the gold and they came back. You know, are you really going there? And I think that's the, the difference. There are some people who just want to go to, you know, I, I just got back from Alaska as we had the big KDD conference in Alaska, uh, and, you know, people, it was a beautiful place, but, you know, there are people who go for the gold rush and there are people who stayed. And I think that's the question is, what, what are you there? Are you there for the gold rush? Or are you there to just go and leave in two years or are you there to stay? And yep. I think that would be how I would, I would think about it. You can't afford to get out. Uh, and I, I do like that final analogy. Hopefully that's a good ending one for the listeners here as well. Charles, always a pleasure to have you on. The, the rife analogies left and right are entertaining and a lot of good lessons here. So thanks again for joining us on AI and Industry this month. Hey, thank you, Dan. Uh, thanks again. I'll talk to you later. So that's all for this episode of AI and Industry. As I might have mentioned, 
in our previous episode. Many of our projects here at Emerge when we work with public or private sector clients are really about the ROI of AI. Our specialty is sort of mapping the AI innovation space with the startups and in the enterprise to find which technologies are accessible, which capabilities are genuinely delivering results for our competitors, and how do we help our clients to actually bring those technologies to life, to inform strategy with actual data about which technologies are best to invest in. I'll often get emails or LinkedIn messages about what we do for research. Probably the most effective way to learn, partially because I'm on the road all the time now as I'm recording this, I'm literally headed off to speak for the United Nations in Belarus uh, in two days. Uh, so packing my bags directly after this recording. The best way to learn about those services or to inquire is to just go to emerge.com. That's E-M-E-R-J.com. On the top menu bar, you'll see research services. You'll be able to learn a little bit more about what we do and also let us know about your requirements and your projects. Again, we help large organizations as well as public sector entities with AI initiatives and informing their strategies with actual data about where the ROI and the traction is in AI. So if you need that or have an interest, go to emerge.com, click on research services. You can find us there. Much more effective than messaging me directly, particularly when I'm in the air and in other countries for five, six days at a clip. So coming up next here on AI and Industry, we have a guest who is with us in our last series. It is rare for this to happen, but David Carmona, the GM of artificial intelligence at Microsoft, joins us this month on our AI ROI series. He was with us on our Getting Started with AI series, and we actually did two interviews in one, so I got his thoughts on ROI as well. Excellent ideas from David in the next episode about a framework for planning for near-term and long-term AI ROI. How do we not just focus on the next three months, the next year, but really think about long-term business advantage while still being able to see something that gives us a return, you know, in the closer to near term. David sort of squares that circle in a very interesting way uh, in the next episode here on AI and industry. So I look forward to catching you next Tuesday. 